Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Uvaha, uvaha, which is once again Ukrainian for Achtung, Achtung, and shades of Iran and Ufafi, unfortunately. But I think in the interest of solidarity to our Ukrainian friends, I think it's absolutely right. Really. Absolutely, but it's just the way my mind works, Jim, unfortunately. I know, I know. Um, anyway, and then you well, start rubbing your thighs. And, uh, you know, uh, well, no, so. I mean, you know, the, 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 anyway. Um, welcome uh, to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Last week we talked about events in Ukraine in 1941, and there's clearly a lot of interest because our download numbers went through the roof. In fact, um, Tim Mercer got in touch to say, this is definitely the episode I was waiting for the last few days. So much of what's going right now seems to directly linked to Putin's interpretation of history. I think that's, I think that's undeniable. Um, mm. And I think, I think it's that thing um, that you've got to remember is that, is that Putin's acting rationally within his um, worldview, isn't he? Yes. Um, that's always the thing you've got to remember that when we go, oh, he's crazy. He's crazy to believe in sort of um, in ethno-nationalism, blah, blah, blah. And the idea of one central eternal Russian and Rus, the Rus people that the Ukrainians and the Russians are part of one undiv- indivisible, blah, blah. No, that's what he thinks. He believes that. And so, and also, he's probably... It's his own personal truth. It's his own personal truth. Well, yes, I mean, God. God. But it is his own personal truth, but it's also absolute bullshit. That's that well, yes, the but, problem. But, but, and but that's, that's a great frustration, isn't it? But, that, but, the, but, but you know, ain't, ain't, that, ain't that the way? And, but also, some of his, clearly some of his strategic inter- um, uh, estimations of what, what the Western response would be, you know, are rational, but what's happened is everyone's changed their minds. Is, is, you know, every now and again, you know, you look at appeasement. Everyone was into appeasement right at the moment, right up to the moment where they suddenly weren't. You know, the, yes. The, yes. The, these, suddenly these in things, August 1939, it was a different, different exa- colour fish. Well, exa- well, well, March, March 39, March really. 39, you know, yes, it's yes, just that everyone is that this can actually, that actually this can happen is that, that, that is that things that, things that were, things that were true, right, you know, or things that everyone agreed on could, can suddenly change in a heartbeat. And I think, that's obviously one of the things that's happened. Is it, all his estimation? You know, people saying, "Oh, you know, Russian money has bought British acquiescence in all this." Yes, but up to a yes, but only up to a point. And the the the, the point. Well, uh, the Nord Stream Two has brought brought German acquiescence. Yes, exa- and, exactly. I, mean, I, I think the German response has been much more interesting than anybody else's. If I'm really yeah. honest, I mean, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Talk about about political vault fast. Well, and you wonder if if Merkel was still in power, whether she'd have been able to do that. Um, politically, and whether it's the fact that Schultz yeah. has the remo- room for manoeuvre, as it were, because he's um, a new boy. Because he's a new boy, you know, and it and it yeah. gives him to rather than being him being continuity, he gets to do something 
you know, powerful and moral like she did when she let, let Syrian refugees into Germany. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, I agree with Tim's point, though. Um, uh, uh, it is all linked to Putin's interpretation of history, which, after all, um, it, it, so he's acting rationally within that framework. I mean, this is... The, <laughs> within this that is the, rational framework. Well, exactly. But this is it, isn't it? You know, we, we often talk about, you know, why, why, the, why the Nazis made the decisions they made the way they made them. Well, they were operating within their within their frame of reference and frame of reason and their estimations of their enemies and, and all that sort of stuff. And so you can, you can argue their decisions are rational. I mean, Adam Tooze, after all, argues that Barbarossa is rational because the German economy is, you know, running on, running on empty and conquering France has delivered nothing economically. In fact, it's caused them more problems than, you know, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. In June 1941, he's got absolutely no choice. He's either got to yeah. end the war yeah. or he's got to go into Russia because there's yeah. no, no other alternative for getting the shortfall in supplies that, he's, that he needs. Yeah, exactly. There's no, you know, there's two massive flaws with that plan. The first one is is that this is the point where where Hitlerian and Nazi ideology gets in the way. Yeah, and the second flaw is that they're not ready. Um, yeah, and and they've done what they did in the Battle of Britain, which is underestimate your enemy. Yeah, and it's always better to overestimate your enemy. And what I would say is that the you know what the, the signs are so far that that the West has. Um, an overestimated Russian military strength. Yes. Uh, because because what you're looking at when you're looking at strength is you're looking at numbers of artillery pieces, numbers of rockets, numbers yep. of warheads, yep. numbers of jets, etc., etc., etc. What you're not looking at, at is uh, logistical capacity. And uh, stuff, uh, and, you know, and, and all, all that stuff. And uh, all know. that stuff. And because yeah. until you've tested it, you don't know what it is. And also, that's not the yeah. stuff that people kind of get excited about. But but actually, yeah. there should be, you know, I'd have thought in military analysis, there should be much, much, much greater emphasis on what is their logistical organisation and how, how do they work things. I, I think that kind of operational side of things hasn't really been well approved in quite the same way, given quite the same attention as as, as numbers of armaments has. Yeah. And it's interesting, yeah. isn't it, when you see train loads of civilian trucks heading to the front line, you kind of know, you know you're up the creek. You know yeah. it's going badly, badly yeah, but, wrong because but, obviously those those things are not armor plated and they're not useful. But isn't it an issue that that you know you judge people by your own standards? So so uh, if you're if you're a Western if you're a Western analyst and you count 450 tanks, you assume, don't you, that that, that the 450 tanks come with the logistical, uh, you know. Uh, gubbins that you would provide yourselves for your own 450 tanks, as it were. You know, you you you, you know. Yes, just, you do. And just to go back to the Battle of Britain again, I mean, one of the one of the one of the reasons why why Park and Dowding in in late August, but nineteen forty, beginning of September, yeah, think they're in such big doo doo, is because they're assuming that a German staffel is the same strength as a, as a British British squadron. squadron. It isn't. It's half yeah. the size. Yeah, yeah. And so their strength is half what they think it is. Effectively, I mean that's that's sort of a bit simpler. That's it's a bit more complicated than that. But this stuff is easily done, after all. You know, when you when when you're you know when when states don't have actual access to each other's information yes. uh, as best they could. Um, now, Patrick Rutherford wrote in to point out. It strikes me that there are some parallels between Thirty Corps stuttering stuttering advance up Hell's Highway and the slow progress of the Russian armored convoy. Column on Kiev. I would, I would disagree. Yeah, I, I think, would disagree completely. I, think I don't think there's any similarity at all. Thirty core hot knife through butter by by by, um, uh, uh, by comparison. Um, and uh, and after all, you know the 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 the, the, the differences 
far outweigh the similarities in the in terms of uh you know air superiority um weather you know yes. that, that actually that the weather the weather's the weather in the weather may go wrong for the airborne forces during market garden and uh, 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 as everyone knows but it does they don't go wrong for the ground force it doesn't go wrong for the ground forces 30 core able to press on without any weather obstacles to, to what they're trying to achieve um you know and do get do get to nymagen um on, on schedule, it's just the. Uh, there are <coughs> scenes, though, aren't there? There are there are scenes of of sort of heartbreakingly familiar to black and white photographs from oh god the I war mean, in the Soviet it's... Union. I mean, you know, whether it be shelled out apartment blocks with huge great hole in yeah. the middle of a road and rubble everywhere. You know, we've seen black and white versions of that from nineteen forty one to three, for example. Uh, or to um, yesterday, villages. I saw some footage. Yes, all that as well. And I, I remember yesterday, I was I saw some footage of a of a Russian um, gun emplacement, artillery emplacement that had just been completely shredded. Well, you know, you yeah. take out the color, kind of sort of half close your eyes, and it could be 1942 all over again. You know, yeah. it's 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 amazing. And the and the columns of burnt out vehicles and stuff. You know, from that point of view, it, it looks hauntingly. Familiar and, and it's weird, isn't it, that in a in an age of, of nuclear power and thermobaric bombs and hypersonic weapons and all the rest of it, there's much of it which actually is pretty much the same. You well, know, field artillery kind of firing shells long range without accuracy. You know, well, and by accuracy. Well, and the thing I, I mean, et cetera, obviously, et and obviously, there's question question marks about a lot of this about the veracity of some of these photos. But some of the pictures, and obviously, you know, the Geneva Conventions say that you're not allowed to take pictures of prisoners of war, but there've been plenty of pictures of, there's been plenty of stuff of prisoners of war. And the thing yeah, I'm always, thing I would say is that not a lot of them are not quite as um, lean as they were in 1940. No, well, that's true, but, but including but the, the rather, rather large, large of girth Russian the, fighter pilot, the chubby, the chubby pilot. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean that, that, that's, that's peculiar in itself. He's there, mm. that he's their top gun. Who's obviously been at their top buns, but the, I mean, the, the, the thing is, the thing is, is the thing I'm struck by is that prisoners of war, when they've just been captured throughout history, look the same. That dejected look, yeah. that look of, um, you know, that that the, the, they're of fear and that yeah. their num their numbers up and all that sort of stuff. I think, I think, and relief and all those all those emotions. You see those those pictures could be the black and white images that we see from the from the um, Second World War as well. Although, obviously, I mean, although we don't know yet because. We haven't had the because this event isn't complete, is it? Is we don't know what's happening to prisoners of war, do we? Um, Which, after all, on the Eastern Front is a an extremely uh, difficult subject and grim subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so what we thought we'd do because uh, last week we we did our damnedest to not get our crystal ball out because I think that that's uh, it's not. I mean, to be honest, it's not our remit, and also. Um, I, I went to the I went to the comedy awards last week. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Did you win? Yeah, no, of course not. Um, uh, no, there isn't there isn't a best Second World War podcast um, <laughs> category at the comedy. I didn't awards. mean that. I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I I went along and I, I had to give out an award and everything, and that was very interesting because because I, I did did a, I did my little bit with Robbie Rinder, Judge Rinder. Right, and we we had a line about how we had no uh, no backstage chemistry at all, which everyone laughed at, and then a lot of people thought 
was true. It was a line we were given, all right? Anyone who saw that. But he's done a load of remember. He's done a load of programs about the Holocaust because his family was um, uh, caught up in the Holocaust. He lost lots of family members. His family lost lots of family members, and he's done some TV about that. So we talked about we talked about about that a bit. But the thing is, is at the start of the awards ceremony, because Zelensky's a comedian. Mm-hmm. There was a tribute to Zelensky right at the start of the program saying, nice. you know, yeah, exactly. But I'm sat there thinking, events are moving very quickly here. This is recorded on this is recorded on Wednesday afternoon last week right. and went you out on Saturday. The time you well, that's what I was thinking. And oh, I yeah. said that to my, you know, I turned to my manager and said, you know, th- th- I mean, this is brilliant. They're doing this and they have to do this. But high risk strategy. But, but, but. but well, especially in the you know the giddy world of modern television. Um, uh, anyway, so it was a it was a that was one of those. So that's why we don't want to get into our crystal balls here because we you know we're we're interested in the Second World War not and not in pronouncing particularly on no, what might and, happen. And it's not it's not our place to do it. And, and yeah. <laughs> the truth is, just like everybody else in the world, we don't know. No, we have no idea Scooby. what's going to come. Well, we're not we're not we're not best placed to give a a proper assessment of current military operations, are we? No, you know, our, I think we thing is the Second World War, not contemporary war. Exactly. I think we know as much as the Russian High Command do right now. So yeah, um... which is not a lot, <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> so, so it would seem. Anyway, so let's talk about Ukraine in the Second World War and talk about 1943 because, after all. Yeah, because we did 1941 last week. We did the giant last week. We yeah. did the giant encirclement of Kiev. Yeah, and then you know, but they claw their way back, and 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 it's an it's an amazing sequence of battles which takes yeah. place following the Battle of Kursk in July yeah. 1943. From August to December is the big sort of reconquest of yeah half of Ukraine. And after all, the Battle of Kursk happens in Ukraine. Yes, it isn't does. it? Yeah. And and this is the th- I think the other thing to remember, you know. We're, 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 in the midst of all this, when especially when you've got when you've got um, you know the Putin government going on about denazifying Ukraine or all this sort of stuff, the most most of what happens in the war on the Eastern Front happens in countries in Ukraine, Belarus, places like that, rather than necessarily in rather than necessarily than in Russia. And we often think of it as the Russian war, don't we? But this is a war that happens in Ukraine. So that so the you know. The, the greatest battle of the Second World War, and I've, I've got my inverted commas out there, um, is the is the battle at the Kursk Salient, isn't it? Well, it's certainly one of the one of the, if not the most famous, probably you know Stalingrad and Kursk are the two that everyone kind of remembers. And, yeah. and if you don't know much about the war on the yeah. Eastern Front, those are the two bits that you do know about. Kursk was absolutely monster. It was this huge, great bulge that had come out in the line and uh, following. Um, Soviet advances yeah. in the spring of 1943. Yeah. And, and so what that means is your line suddenly has got three sides to it rather than one, yeah. if you sort of mean. And yeah. so the German plan for Kursk was to was to straighten that line and reduce reduce the bulge. But I mean, what we're talking about here is one that's sort of, you know, 100 miles by 100 miles by 100 miles. You know, it's, yeah. it's like really, really massive. Yeah. And the guy who was put in charge of kind of defending Kursk was, was Rokossovsky in the main. Uh, and he basically turned it into the lines of Torres Vedras yeah. um, from the Peninsular War with these huge defensive works. I think there were seven lines of defences. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and it was sort of, you know, it was it was known that the Allies were kind of sort of, you know, building up for something in the Mediterranean. And so right from the word go, Hitler said, OK, well, we'll, we'll launch Operation Citadel, but... but the moment it looks like it's going to go, you know, it, the Allies land somewhere but, but, in the Mediterranean, we call it off. 
Um, but, but, and that's exactly what happened, basically. But what's interesting about the Kursk salient, about the Kursk battle, though, is this is the sum capability the Germans have now. 1941, they launched Barbarossa, massive gains. 1942, again, great, great gains, but uh, essentially stymied by uh, Stalingrad. You know, but, but they get to the Caucasus. You know, they they do they do do. If you're just looking at a map and measuring it with a tape measure, like Hitler seems to be, they do very, yeah. very well. But yeah. but but all that they're capable of in 1943. This is, I mean, in a strange way, sort of admission. That, what this offensive amounts to is an admission that Germany is done because they're, they're trying to tidy up a hundred mile, you know, like you say, this front, they're trying to tidy up this salient, which given the, given the bounds they made the two previous years is pretty small beer, isn't it? Yeah, actually. And also, and again, they don't, they don't know what the, what the Russians have, you know, Hitler, they think the defenses are 20 kilometers deep Soviet defenses, but they're like 110 kilometers yeah. deep in, at their, at their yes deepest. and then, then behind the, the you know so, say yeah. you do get you do reduce the the curse salient then behind that there's even more defensive position yeah the step military so, district, district which is a whole other yeah. defensive belt yeah i mean they did yeah, just they, say that say that the, the kursk is in is not in ukraine it's in, in southern russia yeah, but it's yeah, right but, on the it's but right it's right on the, it's right on the it's right yeah. on the border and it and it's absolutely wedded into the subsequent actions in in ukraine yeah. Yeah. It is this absolutely monster battle. I mean, the interesting thing is they, they barely get to the second line of defences. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the Germans are so far from, from, from winning. All they do is... That, so the, the plan is you've got this sort of big square bulge pointing westwards, and it, it literally yeah. is a square. And so the idea for the Germans is to attack from the north and from the south at, at the pinch points, at the, at the yeah. base of the the base of the, of the salient, of the bulge. And try but they just don't off. really get anywhere. I mean, oh. there's all this exciting new work that's been done on the Battle of Pokorovka, which yeah. is 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 the great, the greatest tank battle ever. In, yeah, yeah. Also in air commerce, um, and, and various people have been doing some you know fantastic work on that and proved that actually it wasn't. But in a way, it's sort of irrelevant because because. Well, it is and it isn't because it's become part of folklore and it's part of the kind of Putin version, isn't it? Of, of the well, war, and it's which part is wrong. quite clearly part of how the Red Army. Um, uh, and then its its success, the Russian army uh, uh, has told itself what happened and has built built its built its some um, tactics and reputation on, which is which is it's one of the problems with wonky history, isn't it? Is that learning the real story would 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 reward you more? I mean, and there's been there's been all sorts of sort of currents, like you say. So Roman Roman Topol's written that really a re- really fantastic book about yes about Kursk and building on you know building on the sort of history that gets you into trouble if you're a Russian looking at this stuff. Because the archive was open for a little bit and then it was closed again, and and the losses the Red Army suffers in the Curse Battle, are, are, I mean, they're they're basically they win, but the losses are comp- a, a, astonishing, are completely boggling, aren't they? I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah, I, yeah, it, no, they absolutely are. Um, I think what is really really interesting though is is the Kursk Battle also marks a sort of sea change because it, th- this is the moment where the partisan organisation really kicks in. Yeah. Kicks in. Yeah. And I suppose you know we, we all know that there's been sort of you know government involvement in in resistant networks in Europe, but nowhere is it is it sort of better organised and more strictly organised um, than it is in the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, and basically, in the second half of 1942 and into the beginning of 1943, you see a much greater level of control from Moscow, yeah. um, which is sort of coordinated and organised by the NKVD and, and, you know, which is obviously the forerunner of the KGB 
um, yep. and the Red Army. And it becomes the combined command. And the central staff of the partisans is in Moscow. So yeah. it's a bit like kind of sort of London controlling kind of SOE or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or SIS. But 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 they're then this 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 control is exercised through regional headquarters. And the reason you've got so many is of course because of in these giant encirclements in nineteen forty one, you're not encircling absolutely everybody. You can't possibly. Yeah. So lots of people are kept behind, not picked up as prisoners. I mean, you know, if you know you're going to be picked up as a prisoner by the Germans, you know, what do you do? Run to run to the woods, right? Yeah, and, and and so you've got all these fighters there, and they're they're still weaponized, and their um, arms are being dropped in, and all the rest of it. But what you see is, you know, by the middle of 1943, there's probably about 200,000 partisan fighters, all mm. of whom are organized. Yeah, um, there's no shortage of men or indeed women fighters yeah. in that. Yeah, and then on July the 14th, so at the sort of you know just after kind of Citadel is being called off, which I think Citadel's called off on the by the Germans on the 12th. Yeah. Um, Stavka, which is the kind of high command of the Soviet Soviet Union armed forces, asked, them to asked the partisans to launch Operation Relsovaya Vonya, which is the rail war. That was pretty good, well wasn't it? Yeah, that's that very was strong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and this, <laughs> this lasts until September. And, and the rail war is really, really interesting. And, you know, the numbers of railways that are cut is just absolutely phenomenal so there's 96,000 yeah. partisans specifically cutting german rail links yeah um and they cut them more than 200,000 times in this in this period <laughs> and you can imagine how that absolutely screws up your logistical chain if you're german yeah you know who are so dependent on the railway so dependent yeah. on the railway and the partisans are being used for intelligence gathering. They're being used for reporting on success of air targets, you know, air targeting and all sorts yeah. of stuff, as well as sabotage. But this rail war absolutely cripples the Germans who were already crippled. And it's one of the great, great, it's almost the fourth arm of the, of the, of the Red Army. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's hard to overestimate how debilitating the partisan wars are. And one of the reasons why you have Orador and Montessori in Europe, these terrible slaughters, is because of the absolute brutal violence of Soviet yeah. partisans against the Germans and the debilitating effect it has. So obviously, you know, when Das Reich get to France, southern France in June 1944, and they're being hammed by by French resistant fighters, they just think, oh, God, seen all these guys before in Russia, there's only one way to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, and that's with extreme brutality, um, which is what what they did. I mean, I remember talking to this German machine gunner from Dusseldorf called Franz Marsen. He was a baker by trade. He was a lovely guy, but he was in. Um, I remember he saying during the retreats of 1943, he said he had this guy who was his sort of psychic on the on the machine gun called Peter, and he was a sort of intellectual guy, mm. um, short sighted. You know, should have been at university and not in a uniform. Yeah. Um, and he said they used to sort of change over. You know, they'd you know he'd fire and Peter would feed the magazine. You know, feed the um, the, um, the belts of, of ammunition, and then they switch yeah. over. He said they'd just switched over when Peter got hit um, by a bullet and was evacuated out. And um, the next day they were tramping back and they went past these burnt out ambulances, and yeah. the driver had had his 
which was completely burnt out, and the driver had had his hands tied to the steering wheel with wire before they'd set it on fire. And then all the patients in the back were had been laid out on the side of the road God. with their penises chopped off and put in their mouths and all killed. And one of them was Peter. So Fran said, as you can imagine, you know, when yeah. I came to Italy and suddenly there's more partisans, I wasn't massively sympathetic to their cause. You know, yeah. you can see how, how that all works. But, you know, it was... It's all part of the kind of violence begets violence kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But those partisans are really making a massive, a massive difference, and and it is that issue of supply which is what does for Germany in 1941, which is also still doing for them in 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 1943. Mm. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. And we are doing everything we can to talk about um, uh, Ukraine, not now. So the follow-up from from Kursk, it means that they're already weakened after after the Citadel offensive. Yeah. But their situation is made worse by this rail war that's being conducted yeah. by the partisans. Yeah. I mean, it, show, it shows, doesn't it, that... that <laughs> That when you're occupying a, another country, and you've you know you've not not been invited, so to speak, things can get very very complicated, can't they? And you very can, very quickly. You, yeah. And in fact, you can you can fight. I mean, after all, the Kursk battle, the Kursk battle itself. To come back to it, is so peculiar because after all, the, the Germans inflict incredible losses on the on the Russians, on the Soviets rather, um, and the, yet the Soviets win. Um, and the Germans make no make none of their gains that they're, they're seeking to. They don't they don't disrupt the salient, and then they counterattack. And and you know even though they inflict incredible losses on the Soviets, and then even so you can't even you can't even you, you can have a battle all you want. It's the it's the rest of it that's diff- even more difficult because because you're an occupying power. Yes, you know, absolutely. The, and of course, the, the, the difference now, of course, is is that comms is so much easier than it used yeah. to be. You know, yeah. particularly now for the Ukrainians, thanks to Elon Musk. You know, they it means that Incredibly. you know they are. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That one man in America has got that power. But yeah. But, anyway, that's sort of by the by. But but absolutely, you know, if you, if you're in a in a country that doesn't want to be conquered and doesn't want to be subdued and does see, you know, I think I think for resistance to to work, there has to be either there have to be a certain sort of conditions, and one of them is a sense of hope that actually yeah. there is a kind of hot light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, uh, and there is a future worth fighting for and laying your life yeah. on the line for. And the other one, of course, is control. Uh, and in the case of the Soviet Union, by the middle of 1943, you've got both those conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the and the, the the Germans are, you know, they are running again. It's that it's they are. This is the the best they can do in 43 is attack the Kursk salient. They aren't. They aren't going to get. They aren't going to get to Moscow. They no. aren't going to get to the Caucasus. All that sort of ambition has gone out of what the the Germans can do. And after all, you know that they they're on the, they're on their ass. You look at um, you know, in in May, the, the the bomber command drop more bombs on Dortmund than are dropped on Britain in the whole of 1943. You know, so yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. In terms it? of in terms of sort of par- in terms of your kind of parity. Yeah, and then Sicily's. You've got Sicily going on, and all this sort of stuff. And so the, so the, so, the, you know, if if you're if you're if you're the Germans and you're trying to look at or Hitler and you're trying to look at things in, in, in full round. in yeah. the round, you're actually you're you're 
you're buggered. You know, it's the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, you really are. And then you've got, and then you've got to, to to make choices about kind of what you what you defend tenaciously and what you kind of let yeah. slip. And yeah, you know, the, the, they decide that Orel is the is the town they're going to hold on to, which is in the kind of northern part of the kind yeah. of salient, um, uh, just right, just above above the salient. And this is Rokosovsky attacks this. Um, this is Operation Kutuzov. Um, you know the, the Germans do fight it to fight tenaciously, but it's still taken yeah. on the night of the third and fourth of August. They do a night attack, yeah. come in, boom, yeah, that's that. Um, and as we know, you know the Germans didn't really like doing night operations, so which is why yeah. the Russians do them quite a lot. Um, then there's uh, Operation Rumyantsev, which is to the south towards um, Belgorod and Kharkov. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is Konyev's step front, but also Vatutin's Voronya front. Yeah. So you know you've got these huge fronts. These these which is what we would call an army group. Yeah. Now sort of you know who who have had a comparatively easy time of it in Kursk and now suddenly sort of unleashed and powered forward. Yeah. Uh, and Bolgorod because it's it's protect you know it's covering it, it's south it's southeast southwest rather of the base of the Kursk salient, and yeah. it's sort of protecting Kharkov, which is. Obviously in Ukraine, yeah, and is the kind of next big city on the on on the list. So again, the Germans fight very very tenaciously, but it's completely surrounded by the fifth of August. Um, and that same day they enter the city, and when they get there, they find three thousand dead German troops. Yeah, so not wounded, dead. I mean that that's just a colossal number. And then you know they march on towards Kharkov, and and, and Kharkov is is. Well, the Germans are sort of you know stunned by the speed of this. Um, and by the 22nd of August, they're kind of pulling out. And again, the Red Army does an attack that night to surprise the, the, the Germans and also to prevent the Germans from destructing, destroying the city as they retreat. Um, and by midday on the 23rd of August, it's, you know, it's, it's game over. So Kharkov, which is you know, obviously one of the big cities, and I think it's the second city, isn't it, Ukraine? Yeah. Um, it is back in, back in, in Soviet hands. And it's yeah. a big moment. So suddenly they're back in Ukraine and then it's this kind of, okay, so what are we going to, you know, the Red Army's point of view, it's like, how do we keep this momentum up? How do we keep going? How do we keep pushing it and actually get to Ukraine? Now, the, as we all now know, you know, the Ukraine is kind of riddled with with rivers. And of course, the Dnieper is the, is the biggest of all. And it's a, this mighty, mighty concourse, which kind of flows... For the most part, kind of roughly from the kind of north, in you know, a kind of south easterly direction, but then yeah. just at the southern, just north of the Sea of Azov, it then cuts backwards westwards yeah. and comes out of Kherson, which of course we now all know about, um, and into the Black Sea. But it's this huge, re- and, it, and it basically sort of splits the splits Ukraine in two, yeah, kind of eastern and western halves, yeah. Yeah. And so the next thing is to okay, well let's get get to let's get get up to draw up to the Dnieper, clear kind of eastern Ukraine and take Kiev. And Kiev is is important because it's the third largest city in in the Soviet Union. You know, it is this really really ancient city. It is full of, you know, amazing buildings and architecture and you know, yeah. you know, it is as we were talking about last week, it's this city that 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 Stalin just refused to give up, which is why the Kiev encirclement happens. Because he doesn't give up, he doesn't sort of abandon it when he should do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and basically, this takes them until kind of this whole opera, this series of battles for the Dnieper takes them up until 
December 1943. But it, but it's really interesting because they, you know, they take Donbass to start off with in kind of August 1943, and then yeah. start pushing westwards towards the Dnieper. And it's and and it's how do you get to Kiev? You know, you can't just go straight into Kiev. You're either going to have to attack it from the north or the south, but you've still got to get across this mighty river to yeah. be able to do that. And getting yeah. across and getting a foothold and then bringing enough forces across when you're constantly under enemy fire is obviously the the, the really tricky challenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, 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 but uh, what's remarkable about this is that I mean, again, the sheer numbers involved in these in in these battles. Yes, because when you say a front, because we're used to talking about army groups in 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 western europe what what's what's a front compared to an army group jim yeah well it's 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 it's, it's really numbers but what you're getting is you're starting to get tank armies you know guards yeah. tank armies yeah. so this is this is you know 100% mobilized pretty much yeah um, the Voronezh, the Voronezh front is the third guards tank army first tank army fourth guards tank army first guard cavalry corps fourth yes. guards army fourth Fifth Guards Army, Sixth Cavalry Guards Army. Cavalry is still horses, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, so that just the, the, the scale of this. Yes. Well, um, I mean, you know what what you've got north to south in this area of southern Russia around Kursk, yeah. down to kind of you know the the Sea of Azov, Black Sea. You've got the Bryansk, but by this is by kind of August September nineteen forty three. Yeah. So you've yeah, got yeah. the Bryansk front, which is uh, General Markian Popov. Yeah. You know, a general that no one's really heard of anymore. Then yeah. you've got the central front, which is Rokossovsky, you know, yeah. friend of the show. Yeah. Um, generally kind of, you know, probably the most amazing commander of the in the Red Army in the Second World War, I, I would yeah. argue. Yeah, yeah. Then you've got Vatutin's Vronyev's front. You know, he's pretty damn good. Yeah. Then you've got the Steppe Front, which we've already talked about, which is renamed the Ukrainian Front on the 10th of October. And that's yeah. Konyev. You know, again, yep. he comes to the fore, isn't he? He's a big key player in Bagration and yep. Fall of Berlin and all the rest of it. And then you've got the Southern Front, which is General Fyodor uh, Telbukin. Yeah. That, that, you know, Southern Front is... So th what we're talking about for the Battle of Ukraine, really, and the Dnieper battles, is the Vronya Front and the Steppe Front stroke Ukrainian Front, as it becomes renamed. That That's yeah. what we're talking about here. Yeah. But I suppose the really interesting thing is, is they decide to go first for an assault across the Dnieper south of about 60 miles south east of Kiev at a place yeah. called Bukrin, Velkihi Bukrin, yeah. which is on the western side of uh, of the Dnieper. And uh, you, yeah. know, you have to understand that this, this is sort of like the Rhine. I mean, it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. freaking enormous. Yeah. Know, it's hundreds of metres wide. Yeah, it's 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 such a major thing to get across this. You know, uh, uh, the logistical challenges of getting of making a bridgehead over this are you know in a in a in a way as great as sort of getting across the channel. Not quite like yeah. that, but I mean, you know, it's a, a major major operation. It's a major defensive barrier. Um, and how do you do that? Well, you 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 create a bridgehead, you enlarge it, you expand it, you break yeah. out. Yeah. And how do you think? They decide well, to do this. Well, they're going to use. The, the, <laughs> well, they're going to they're going to do um, what they've they've got had something up their sleeve all this time, which is yeah. because after all, it was the Soviets. They were the founders. They were the founders. They so what they do is they do an airborne landing, don't they? they and do. and it's an absolute um, catastrophe, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. It 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 couldn't be. 
it couldn't it couldn't go worse. They're basically all hunted down and killed, aren't they? Essentially. Yep. Essentially, yeah. Four thousand five hundred seventy-five. Yeah. Nearly all of them are killed. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it, and the interesting thing it is, it is the last. It's the last airborne operation in Europe using Soviet troops. Right. Ever until, you know, 10 days ago or whatever. Till the other day. Yeah. Till the other yeah, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, because, but, I mean, and they see. Read your history, to, Vlad. But when you go, but when you go <laughs> to. There the, are when warnings. You, but Jim, when you go to, when you go to Moscow and you go to the Victory Museum there, you know, which is the most extraordinary building, incredible mm. building. Um, and and uh, uh, there are these huge murals of four scenes of, you know, of the second world war and, uh, or, or, or maybe it's half a dozen. I can't remember anyway, but one of them is of, so, you know, there's taking the rice stag, I think. Uh, 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 but the, the one that had me standing going really is, is t- seizing the Dnieper and it's airborne troops um, successfully seizing the Dnieper. And, and, you know, you think, well... It's successfully I mean, in inverted commas. That's the point. Well, no, it's the heroic... See, it's the heroic um, capture the Dnieper by um, Russian paratroopers. And you sort of think, well, I mean... I mean, after all, after all, um, there's a school of thought that says, you know, D-Day, go, D-Day in the end goes very well, which proves the efficacy of using airborne forces. Whereas, in fact, right. when you, you could then examine how well... Six airborne or hundred first or second do on the night, and you could go well. Yeah, if you want those airborne operations go well, but add or subtract them. What difference would they, what actual difference in outcome would you get? You could, you can argue, but because the whole thing's a success, using airborne works, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know they get across the Dnieper. So using airborne forces is a success, James. There you go. <laughs> That's how you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting what they've what they've. You know that what they've so so, so so they land and they get they do get the, they do secure this as a brief this yeah. brief bridgehead, yeah. Then there are crossings in boats and rafts which are constantly under fire and which are absolutely slaughtered. But they do manage yeah. to kind of you know because they're Red Army, yeah. they can take hits that others can't, and and so they do get across. And you know this this is the 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 airborne landing happens on the 23rd of of September 1943 yeah. and by the yeah. 12th of October um you know th- they've got quite a lot more they've got they've got six tank corps yeah. over and they've got 14 rifle divisions now a, a, a red army <laughs> rifle division is not 15,000 men it's more like no but but still <laughs> it's quite a lot though you know so they've got yeah. by this time they've got a 3 to 1 advantage of infantry and a 6 to 1 advantage in tanks yeah, but the problem they've got is they can't reinforce it with firepower because the firepower is all coming from the other side of the Dnieper and it's just too yeah. far. So, yeah. so you've got your little, you know, besieged bridgehead and it's breaking out. To break out successfully, you need your artillery over the other side of the Dnieper. And they yeah. just, you know, the the logistical problems, the difficulties of getting across the river under constant German artillery fire, yeah, is just too problematic, and so it doesn't work. So Vatutin initially causes, says, okay, even even for us, this is, this is not yeah. working, calls the halt yeah. on the 15th of October. <laughs> but Zukov, who's overall charge, says, no, 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 give, give it another crack. Um, so on the 21st, they do get they get some guns over, and they they bring up a whole barrage of artillery yeah. for, for on the far side, on the eastern side of the Dnieper, right close to the banks. Yeah. And so behind this barrage, this long-range barrage, 
they give it another go on the 21st of October. But again, they, you know, it's raining and observation is poor and they, they just can't exploit mm. any local successes enough. You yeah. know, it's the same, it's, it's effectively the same problems you had on the Western Front in the First World War. Yeah. And and so again on the twenty fourth of October the offensive called called to halt. And interesting, the, there is this incredible website called I Remember dot ru. And if anyone yeah. wants to look at it, I'd urge them to look at it really quickly. Before it gets yeah, while well you can. But there is yeah. a. It's in Russian, but it's also there is an English option. And there's a there's various eyewitness testimonies there. And one of the people they've got on there is Natalia Peskova. Um, who was a a medic, a frontline medic, first in a in a yeah. in a infantry division and then in a tank division, and she's also a sort of political. She's a commissol, uh, yeah. commissol rather, a political person within the um, a communist within the, within this division, and, and clearly treated with a huge amount of respect by the blokes. She's yeah. wounded three times. I mean, she's sort of hit in the buttocks then she's hit in the head then she's yeah. wounded again in the arm or something i mean she's she's obviously uh, a formidable lady uh, and quite aristocratic in background right. interestingly but right. but she's very interesting because she's she's in the bukharin bridgehead yeah. during this period and yeah. uh, uh and she's she's talking about you know um about seeing the katusha rockets firing for the first time they'd heard a lot about yeah. them and that kind of sort of yeah. gave them a bit of confidence boost but she says she says when you see a bomb falling you feel like it is directed at you actually it is falling above you but can land anywhere most people lay face downwards and hid their head in their hands i always lay belly up i had to watch what was going on lots of people were being killed in the bukran head bridgehead i had a friend in a neighboring battalion they had 280 graduates from a military college. After the Battle of Bukrin, only 16 of them were alive. Bear in mind, they had been trained. Our recruits after the battle were the boys of 16 and older from the nearby villages. They knew nothing and were scared of everything. These were our fresh faces. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she's yeah. tough as old boots. She gets, she gets, um, she gets separated. Um, yeah. as they're trying to um, trying to sort of move out of this this bridgehead uh, and gets lost in you know she's she's sort of uh, missing in action for three days yeah but manages to at one point they're in a they're hiding in a hayrick in a field her and her friend and German tanks start crossing it and they can the tanks are so close they can hear the Germans talking but they don't get discovered I mean it's it, it, it's amazing reading this stuff. I, I, it, yeah. it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But anyway, the the, the denouement of, of the failure of the Bukharin bridgehead and it doesn't work. Yeah. It can't get to Kiev. As they go, Vitutin goes, okay, right. We just have to completely change tack. What we'll do is we'll attack from the north instead. So they have this huge logistical <laughs> operation to move everything. It's not just sixty miles north to Kiev. It's beyond. Yeah, they then have to cross. The Dnieper, where it is, um, you know, it's actually seven uh, at Lyutis, Lyutis, which actually again is is in the news at the moment. So this is where the Dnieper is seven hundred meters wide. Jesus, yeah. Um, but it's just north of the Urpin, you know, which is where they blow yeah. that bridge and where people yeah. that family were killed yesterday. Yeah. Um, so this is the same bit north of Kiev where the Russians are. Now, 
yeah. coming down an hour. And actually, the access of advance coming, so, you know, so, so with the Dnieper on your, you know, to the west of the Dnieper is exactly yeah. the same, the same access. Yeah. Um, and the challenges of getting enough troops, but more importantly, support troops, yeah. is absolutely enormous. But but it's really really interesting because um, it's it's Moskalenko who's the commander of the thirty eighth army, and Moskalenko is the guy who designs the battle plan with Vatutin's say so. Yeah, yeah. And what he decides to do is to attack on a very very narrow front, a three mile front, and get a huge amount of artillery to to punch a hole. The action to punch a hole, and just blow away the kind of you know the German defences north of Kiev. Yeah. And the reason he chooses this is because there's quite a lot of forest there and he thinks that will hide the Germans when we were to see them coming. Um, and, and to keep this really, really concentrated fire. But what he also does is, and this is, again, this is a sort of, you know, a hangover from Rokossovsky's plans in 1940, you know, at Kursk yeah. in 1943, yeah. in summer of 1943, this idea of the concept of the deep battle. Which yeah. is where you get your 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 first echelons and uh, are stacked up with your second echelons, yeah. So that your first your first troops can go forward with their first echelon, yeah. And then the second echelon is going to come hurtling straight past, so that you can keep that momentum, yeah. Which is, obviously is exactly what the Russians have not been doing this time yes. around, yeah. Um, and, and the speed with which this second echelon comes through when they do actually launch the attack is 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 absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they launch this battle, and the, the idea is to kind of be there by the 7th of November. And 7th of November is the great anniversary of the October Revolution, 1917, which obviously seems a bit odd because it's in November, not October. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, 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 but that is the day. <laughs> uh, and they launch this, this, this incredible attack. Um, and, you know, there are 380 guns lined up over this very, very narrow stretch, you know, which is incredible, you know, 380 per kilometre. God. Yeah, so that's one every, that's less than, that's one every yeah. two and a bit yeah. Yeah. metres. Yeah. In terms of concentration of firepower. God. And it just completely blows away the Germans. You know, there's just nothing left. At yeah, all. yeah. But then, then, then it's the it's the it's the um, I think it's is it the third yes the third tank third guards tank army, which then follows through, and they have a little bit of stickiness. So, um, what they decide to do is actually again they're going to do another night operation, and they're mm. going to go with all their sirens wailing and all their lights on. And so it's it's like the kind of sort of the ride of the Valkyries. It's, yeah, it's like yeah. the sort of you know the Dementors coming towards you. Yeah. So although that means that the Germans can see them coming, there is just this sort of absolutely terrifying siren of just this massive armour coming towards them. And it absolutely does for them. And, you know, and, and by the middle of, uh, by the 7th of, of November, exactly as planned, you know, Kiev is back in, in back in... Um, in Soviet hands. In Soviet hands. And, you know, the city is, is, is interesting. You know, it's this kind of like this... There's ruins everywhere and fires yeah. burning, ugly piles of rubble, you know, where once there'd been beautiful buildings and so on. You know, the, the, the famous, yeah. you know, Kiev was famous for its avenues of chestnuts and poplars yeah. and what have it. They've all been burned and destroyed. They've all been destroyed. Or cut down or whatever. 
and, and in a city of one million, there's only about 125,000 people. Yeah. And, and when the when the Red Army troops get to the centre of of Kiev, it's like this ghost town. It's like this sort of post-apocalyptic place of sort of still burning panzers and SP guns and blackened child hulks and rubble absolutely everywhere, and not a soul to be seen. And it's only as they start to kind of sort of come in numbers that slowly the kind of the the, the Ukrainian residents starts to emerge from the cellars and slowly but surely these kind of, sort of subterranean dwellers in this kind of besieged city finally emerge you know city starts to to reemerge yeah. yeah um on that i remember site there's an account of a paratrooper from that drop over the dnieper yeah we we had to jump from 300 meters in order to land faster and so that we would not be scattered and the pilots moving away from anti-aircraft fire climbed 2000 meters we were told that we would be behind enemy lines for 3 to 4 days we had to seize bridgeheads and hold them until the reserves arrived. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. Yeah. Landed landed at a distance of 25 to 30 kilometers from the calculated point. Right? So they're off to a bad start. This is a chap called um, uh, Nezhivenko Peter Nikolaevich. Right? Um, uh, and, it go, and, it, and it goes on. And, the, and they're dump, jumping from the, you know, the, the Douglas copy, the DC-3 copy that the Soviets have. Um, uh, the whole brigade should be parachuted within a radius of seven to ten kilometers, and the pilots scattered it for one hundred kilometers from Richishiv to Cherkasy. And instead of brigade actions, we had to act in small detachments, detachments that are easy to destroy. So, scattered drop, they lose their critical mass on the battlefield. Yep. I mean, you no know, concentration of force. No, exactly. Um, I landed right on the outskirts of the village, and next to me were six more people. We landed and signalled. We had clear digital passwords for signals. I shout 15. He must ask to answer 10. Everything is clear. 25. You shout to me 10. I 15. Everything is clear. 25. Your brother. Everything is clear. In addition, each paratrooper had flashlights to give light signals. We landed on the outskirts of the village, unfastened our parachutes, and immediately entered the battle with the police. Probably they did not notice our drop. And then they went into the forest. We had such a good guy in our detachment, Nikolai, he showed us how to cross the Ross River. So basically, they end up hooking up with partisans the, because they've got no option. Yep. Um, uh, in the evenings, we met one grandfather, Grandfather Ignat, and asked where the partisan detachment was. And who are you? We are paratroopers. Why are you in uniform? Already from February 1943, sh- sh- shoulder straps were introduced. So that's the thing of... There's yep. a, a marks of rank returning to the yep. Red Army. Well, the epilogues, um, yeah. Yeah, they showed him the documents. He said, well, then let's go. He was specially sent by the commander of the partisan detachment to meet the paratroopers. So basically, they end up um, uh, behind enemy lines with an anti-tank rifle um, trying to cause trouble. At first, such columns passed that we were too tough. And then the observer in the tree responded, the small column was coming. We have distributed who hits what. The PTR hits the last car on the right, the first on the left. We throw grenades at the column itself. The column approached. I shot at the lead vehicle, and the PTR has incendiary bullets. So that's an an anti-tank rifle, isn't it? Just hit, immediately flares up any tank with the exception of the Tiger, the Panther, and the Ferdinand. So don't try blowing up the heavy stuff. And this is is what they end up doing. Because... And and hanging on and and waiting and waiting and waiting to you know for the basically the main battlefront rather than being relieved for the main battlefront to catch up with them and that's what it's, happens eventually right yep and he gets a partisan of Ukraine medal for fighting with the partisans oh, isn't that amazing in Ukraine absolutely amazing. Yeah.
Yeah. The other thing I think has been really interesting about all this, uh, the, what's going on at the moment, is the sort of, you know, people reporting that the, the Russian troops are kind of lacking morale and weren't prepared for this and hadn't been warned mm. and all this kind of stuff, which yeah. is in sharp contrast to the lead lead troops on any major, major op- uh, offensive that the Red Army is sort of carrying out in 1943. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you do have you have these political commissars and they do go around and they and, and one of the key things and um, Natalia um, uh, Paskova is very interesting about this in her, her yeah. account, you know, talking about the importance of of morale and, and keeping everyone up and making, you know, and, and, and so, you know, a lot of people weren't doing it for Stalin. They were doing it for the motherland. This, this idea of patriotism yeah. was incredibly strong that you were doing this for, for something, some bigger cause. Yeah. And what, where the Red Army was very, very successful was recruiting brilliant writers and speakers to come and give pep talks and write in kind of, you know, Pravda and also the Krasnaya Zvezda, which is the kind of Red Army newspaper equivalent of Crusader and stuff and Stars and Stripes. And one of the guys who was right at the front sort of briefing 38th Army and and, and 3rd Tanks Guards Army was Ilya Edinburgh, who's quite a famous writer. You know, he's um, he's Ukrainian Kiev-born, but but a non-practicing Lithuanian Jew, right? And you know he he's kind of rubbed shoulders with Lenin in Paris, and you know before the First World War, and yeah, he's quite a quite a big name, and obviously feels very very strongly about Kiev being retaken. So he goes and visits the troops and gives these series of talks. So it's not Monty going around giving; it's not the generals giving talks. It's these no. these journalists, these writers, which is such an interesting concept. Yeah. And his speeches are then written up and put in Krasnaya Zvezda. And one of them on the eve of Kiev gets published. And and it's worth just reading out a little bit of it because it says, says, we must save Kiev. We get ahead of the incendiaries. We must outrun death. Um, life awaits. It awaits in deadly anguish. Without Kiev, there is no Ukraine. There is no homeland without Kiev. Here beside the venerable Dnieper, formidable battles have raged. The fate of Kiev depends upon them. Our destiny too depends upon them. If we drive the Germans from Kiev, they will retreat to Germany. The Germans want Kiev to become their strong point. Kiev must become their grave. Amazing stuff. I mean, but 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 doesn't that remind you of the you know of the rhetoric we've heard of? Uh, and obviously what we're not hearing at the moment um, in, in this crisis is the Russian rhetoric particularly. But that, you know, uh, uh, flowers will grow where you die here, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, 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 been... exactly. It's absolutely um, amazing, isn't it? But like I say, we've not been hearing the the, the, the Russian end of things. Um, uh, no. What their what their nationalist denazification uh, rhetoric sounds like. I expect it sounds not, not dissimilar. Um, yeah, get uh, rid of the Nazis again. Yeah, although their their problem is they're simultaneously claiming Ukrainians are their brothers and killing them, which of course is some um, <clears throat> a, a tricky a tricky thing. But but again, we all we can do is all we can do is sort of um, look on and not not get our crystal balls out. No, um, what we can tell you is that is that you know life under German occupation in Kiev. You know, if you were a Kiev resident, oh, it was unbelievably brutal. Lots and yeah. lots of public executions. Yeah, you know the Germans needed absolutely no excuse to round up completely innocent people and, and execute yeah. them for kind of crimes of partisans. Yeah, inverted commas. Um, you know, there was almost no education. You know, because you know they're in dimension, they don't need to be educated. There's, there's yeah. no point. So that was kind of, you know, obviously 
Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, um, everyone's starving in the city. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it's it's hard to put into words just how brutal life in Kiev had been in the kind of sort of two years that the that the Germans well, occupied so, it. Well, so brutal that it um, uh, uh, manages to help people get over the fact that they've had a ho- the Holodomor done to them only in the previous decade you know the the, the germans the germans are going something to yes. get people to um uh, uh to think this is a war of national survival given that their nation has only just survived something horrendous appalling as the famine yeah yeah, no, yeah. absolutely no it is it's quite something isn't it i mean talk about mismanagement it's um mm. it's incredible anyway i think that's probably that's probably um all we've yeah, got time for today it's quite a long um, one actually yeah it's quite a long one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot, to say, there's, 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 there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say, and and again, I mean, we, um, who did we talk to about? It hasn't been out yet. Um, <laughs> about how about how you know the, the war on the Eastern Front is the war of many countries. There are many countries yes, and many nationalities yes, yes, yes. and peoples caught up in it. You can't you can't just call it the Soviet Union versus the Germans. Yeah, Bastian Willem. That's Bastian Willem making out the point that a Bavarian might have a different view of of what Germany is to a Prussian for a start, you know. Anyway, um, uh, that's it for today. Uh, this Thursday, we're heading further east as we're joined by Rana Mitter to talk about China's role in the Second World War. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, that was a great chat. Um, incredible. Like, that was a proper Oxford, that had proper Oxford tutorial stuff <laughs> going on in it as well. <laughs> um, so don't miss that. And on Sunday, we've got the last episode of this series of Family Stories, but keep your stories coming in and we'll start work soon on uh, Series 3 for the summer. Thanks again, as ever, for listening. We'll see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.